Greetings this morning to you all for coming out. We are here in a comfortable place and it's cool and it's we have padded seats, not the most comfortable seats you can find in this world, but they are actually padded. And we think of what the people in that song that we just sung may have met on a dark or a stormy night or uh, sometime where it was cold, dark, some place where they couldn't be found. They wanted to meet together. Yes, we know a little about that. We really do. Although, if things keep on going as they are in this land that we live in, we may learn more about it in the years ahead. So, glad you could all come out and thank you for the first message and thank you for the message in songs. Um, I guess I don't see David right now. Well, I am stimulated and motivated often by the word of God. And then I am stimulated often by conversations that I participate in. And certain conversations or certain events happen in my life. And one of those conversations happened this last time in our brother's meeting. So uh, we were reviewing the guidelines that we had compiled as a result of our merging our, our guidelines that we had, and then we came under harmony, and then they had their guidelines, and we merged the two together, and we presented to the brothers the merged guidelines and say, well, now um, this is, look it over. Basically, was if you have any questions, any comments, and so on, now's the time to, to speak up. Now's the time. And someone did speak up. Someone noticed that our guidelines, most of the subjects had no scripture references behind it. No scripture reference connected to them. And this brought the question of why and a little bit of a concern that it was so. Now, I want to say that I appreciate such questions. Well, let me say most of the time. (laughs) Do not be afraid to ask such questions. To be challenged by such questions, to ask those questions, or to be challenged by such questions, or even to be in a place where you are asked a question and you have no ready words to answer. Don't be afraid of that. Because... Those are times when, those are opportunities, those are the times when we have the opportunity to grow. Um, Those are times when our fundamental presuppositions, let's say that, what, what you actually always thought was right, what you just thought was the way it was, uh, during a, a questions like that, you get challenged on what you always thought was right. 
and and your your what to say your foundational presuppositions are exposed, and then you can examine them. That's the point. That's that's the benefit of it. And then we are required to give an account of what we believe and what we say and what we do. And the result is is that our thoughts and our beliefs get sorted out. They get chiseled, they get sharp, sharpened. And it's the equivalent of iron sharpened iron, those questions. But I want to put a caution in here. <laughs> those questions are not without dangers. And maybe you thought of that as I was speaking, that those questions are good questions, but they're not without dangers. Because a well-challenged, a well-placed challenge has either started or expanded doubt in many and many a Christian's heart. So instead of chiseling and sharpening, it can also have the opposite effect. It can. I've actually had that done to me intentionally. A question put to me with the intent of putting doubt in my heart of what he knew I believed. I had that done to me. And deception is as real as truth, and evil communications do corrupt good manners. So, regular exposure to false doctrine of practice does have a negative and it can have a negative and dangerous effect. So I just want to bring to both sides of that. But what I meant to bring out is that those questions are good for us in general. And that's what I'm speaking about this morning. Um, I'm not speaking about the negative part. I'm speaking about the, the part that it is good to ask questions. We do not believe that you should just do, everybody here should just do what we say you should do because we are the authority and we say so and you, we older ones, we know better and so you just do what we say. It's okay to think. It's okay to ask questions. You actually have a responsibility to do that. Now there are two ways to ask questions. And I've heard the questions asked both ways. The one way is, oh, I see we don't, I, I don't see any, ref, I don't see any uh, scripture references connected to our guidelines. Therefore, the guidelines are not legitimate. They're not authoritative. I really didn't like them anyhow. And since there's no scripture connected to them, I don't need to obey them or follow them. They're just man-made rules and they're legalism. The other way is we should have scripture connected to every directive we have. We, we don't just want a bunch of guidelines that are arbitrary and have no connection with scripture. We want to be scriptural and biblical in everything we do. If you notice, those two hearts are not the same. 
I don't know if you were thinking along with me or not. Those are two different ways of asking the same question. There's no scriptures connected to the guidelines, but two different kinds of hearts. The first heart that I described is a heart, maybe a simple person in the sense of unwise or inexperienced or naive, but that is a generous evaluation. More likely, that kind of heart is a kind of a libertine or rebellious heart who covers his or her rebellious heart with a super spiritual front. There's no scripture connected to it. And he wants liberty from the supposed shackles that are on him, and this is a way to do that in a spiritual-sounding way. The other heart is a heart after truth, and I can sympathize with the desire of having scripture references connected to everything. It's a safeguard to keep our focus from shifting from the truth. This morning, I'm going to speak on a topic that the title sounds like heresy. I'm going to speak on the topic of the tyranny of chapter and verse. <laughs> tyranny of chapter and verse. Tyranny, some that might not be familiar with some, there's some synonyms of tyranny. It means a totalitarian. It means oppressive. It means authoritarian. It's, it's being under a bondage. Um, children of Israel were under the tyranny of Egypt, the, the Pharaoh. They were under its bondage. So you could say it, the bondage of chapter and verse. Now that sounds like heresy right off the bat, but I'll explain to you what I mean that. I'm going to speak on the downside of requiring a specific chapter and verse for every activity and every point and every guideline. The downside, or rather, I, wanted, I want to teach the proper perspective of it. Proper perspective. That's my goal this morning. Because there are many Christians who say, show me the chapter and verse. If there's not a direct reference in scripture, then either the Bible is considered silent on the subject or is okay with the subject. And this is the common, the common position, let's say it that way, of the evangelical world, especially the world that strictly stays on sola scriptura, which means scripture alone is the basis for everything, and that is true, although it's applied maybe in a different way than what I will this morning. So that's common in the evangelical world to require a chapter and verse. And uh, some scripture verses they quote, rightfully so, is Isaiah 8.20, to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. That's talking about false prophets, but it means you, 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 you take what someone says and you line it up with the word and if it doesn't line up with the word they're a false prophet and you do that with me this morning you are to do that that is the correct way but then they take it sometimes to a place where it shouldn't go 
show me a chapter or verse. If you can't show me directly from the Bible that TV is wrong, uh, yeah, I had that word. If you can't show, show me directly from the Bible that TV is wrong. If you are a female, show me directly from the scripture that wearing pants is wrong. What about going to the movies or watching professional sports? In other words, show me from the Bible, show me a chapter and show me a verse that says it's wrong for me to put jack-o'-lantern pumpkins on my porch in October. Or in spring if you want to, but in October. The assumption usually is, if you can't show me a clear Bible verse dealing with anything, it falls in the area of Christian liberty. Therefore, you may do, you may wear, you may participate in whatever it is if you so desire. Another way I have heard it is, is that sin is the transgression of the law. So tell me where it says, thou shalt not. You can't be so vague if you want to convince me of something. You must give me a chapter and verse. The outcome is, is a church is a church that participates in most of what the world participates in. In fact, it doesn't, the separation that we talked about this morning is generally not practiced in, in, in most churches. They dress like most others. They don't, churches don't have guidelines. They don't have restrictions. They don't have expectations. Discipline is either lax or non-existence because there are not chapters and verses speaking directly to the things that we have in our modern era. So, the tyranny of chapter and verse. First, the overview. The Bible is a revelation from God. Written by the Holy Spirit and written through the instrumentation of men. It is Absolutely authoritative in what it says. It tells us who God is. It tells us who we are. It tells us it, it's a history. It's a story. It's a letter. It's a narrative. It's a heart. And it's a whole lot more than that. But that's what the Bible is. However, the Bible is not written like a lawyer's manual. It's not written like um, statutory law, statutory law, rather. It's not a constitution. It's not a legal document in that sense. You see, in legal matters, to be charged with a crime, you have to, you have to violate an exact statute, an exact law. You have to do it exactly. I take an example of if you did not break an existing law, you cannot be charged. You might do something that's ethically, ethically wrong or is unkind or it's a virus thing, but if you didn't break a law, you're, you're, you're not charged. Like the example of Linda's kidnapper. He's in, he's, uh, he's in prison now. The assumption is that he knows where she is. That's the assumption. We don't know that. But no one's telling. 
it seems so wrong for him not to put an end to their parents' grief and let them know. But he's not doing anything wrong according to the law. He had the right to be silent, but it's not right. So the Bible is not written like a lawyer's manual. God's word is not like that. It's all comprehensive because it deals with the heart and it's relational. That's why two people can do the exact same thing. And the one is with a different heart. And one will be judged and it can be judged exactly opposite by God. The same thing, a different heart, a different motive, and be judged exactly this different, uh, exactly the opposite by God. And God will be just in doing that because it's not particularly law. A few verses here that would uh, back that up. Many will say to me in that day, Matthew 7, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? That sounds good. And in thy name cast out devils, in thy name done many wonderful works. Then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Right works, wrong reason. I could go down a rabbit trail there, but I want to show, I wanted to show briefly that requiring chapter and verse for every activity and action is actually the legalistic way of applying scripture. That is actually a, way, a, a form of legalism. It's not the only form, but it is a form of legalism. And now I want to show that applying the scripture's heart, which is God's heart, in ways that are not directly spelled out in scripture is not legalism. It is actually the opposite. It's relational. Jesus did it. And I know I had a message one time that talked about how some Jews were getting out around of taking care of their parents when they were in their old age by promising or dedicating all their resources when they die to the temple. And so they had no resources to give to their parents and they didn't have to, and they were left legally, had a legal way to not take care of them. And Jesus said, you are not honoring, you are disobeying God by not honoring them, but there is no scripture that says you have to take care of your parents in old age. But Jesus applied to scripture in, in its, in its meaning, not as a law, but as, as a heart. So, let's turn now to our text this morning, Titus chapter 1, no, Titus chapter 2. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. This will be the verse that explains what I will be trying to communicate this morning. It's been a number of years since I heard a message that had my understanding of this verse and this chapter flipped on its head. Now, just a little bit of context here. Uh, Titus is being instructed by Paul how to, well, he was told to stay at the island of Crete. There were lots of new believers there, and it was a very corrupt culture, and these new believers 
were converted from this heathenism from a very ungodly culture. They were newly filled with the Spirit of God. But they needed lots of care and teaching. And just before uh, chapter 2 here, um, Paul instructs Timothy. He is told, uh, not Timothy, Titus. He's told to rebuke the false teacher sharply. He said, uh, Paul told him that a bishop must be able to stand up against false teaching and call them out. And then the, the verse just before chapter 2, it says, They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being an abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. This is the situation at Crete in this time around this new church. And now Titus, to the church, speak the things which become sound doctrine. And what follows this verse in verses 2 to 10 is practical behaviors and conduct. Older men, younger men, older women, younger women, slaves. Even the slaves were instructed in proper behavior and attitudes. So Titus, speak, instruct the church, the things which become sound doctrine. Now, this is what I believed all my life until about 10 years ago when I heard a message that opened it up for me. I believe that chapter, the verse 1, is he's instructed to teach sound doctrine. Then verses 2 to 10 was the sound doctrine. That's why I understood. That's the sound doctrine he is to teach. But I don't think so. It's actually not the sound doctrine. And uh, I want to explain that to you, how I got to that understanding. So, three things we want to answer from this first verse of chapter 2. What, what does the word become mean? That's number one. Number two, what is meant by the word things? And number three, if verses 2 to 10 is not what is meant by sound doctrine, what exactly is this sound doctrine? So, what does the word become mean? Speak out of things which become sound doctrine. We did a word study this morning, Neil. That was very unique how you did that. Just get the words out. That's, that's a blessing. What well, the word become here means fitting or appropriate. It means to be in agreement with. There's another verse that uses it, Ephesians 5, 3. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. As is fitting for saint, it's not fitting for a saint to be have fornication, uncleanness, or covetousness. That's that a saint and that kind of behavior don't fit together. They don't line up together. They don't agree together. Your behavior is to line up and agree with your position and your profession. And the ESV says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And I think that might be the, the best word to use. If you have a piano, you have some notes that accord. They accord with each other. 
And then you have some notes that do not accord. They discord. They do not go together. And I, I don't know the science of music, but I'm sure how those all those ways fit together. It's it's not like you have to know music. You just can hear it. They accord or they don't accord. They don't agree. They clash. So the best way I can translate this verse is Titus, teach the things that accord with sound doctrine. Promote the kind of living that reflects sound teaching. Okay, so that's what the word become means. What is meant by the word things? The things are what follow in verses 2 to 10. Verses 2 to 10 accord with and reflect sound doctrine. It's a focus on behavior and conduct, what one does and what one does not do. That's what the focus is on. And it's the things, the things deal with the behavior and the activities and the character of everybody in the church. And he just goes from one end to the other, the older men, older women, younger men, younger women, and servants. The whole, whole spectrum, everybody. And the general principle being that the older being an example to the younger and instructing the younger, that that comes out there too. So that's what the things are, verses 2 to 10. Now if, number 3, if verses 2 to 10 are not the sound doctrine, then what is sound doctrine? What is he meant when he's saying, speak out a thing which accord with sound doctrine? Well, the first hint that we have is in is here in Titus. It's in verses nine and actually in verse ten. Uh, but I'll read verse nine. The context: Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters and please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine. Of God our Savior in all things. So there we have the word doctrine again. And the structure of this verse confirms what my main premise is this morning. The servants are instructed in their behavior and in their conduct and in their attitude so that they can make something beautiful, something else beautiful. The things that they are doing, the things that they are instructed to do are the things so that they can beautify something else. That's the, that's the um, format, the structure of this. And what they are to beautify is the doctrine of God our Savior. And in verse 11, it keeps on, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. And what I see here is that the doctrine of God, our Savior, or the sound doctrine, rather, that is referred to all this time is this doctrine of grace. The grace of God, this doctrine of grace. The grace of God had come to everybody in the church there, older, younger, rich, and poor. The grace of God had come to them all. 
they have experienced the grace of God. And I'm going to try to expound a little bit on that. And I, I, I found a song that talks about grace. And we're familiar with it. It says, marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. And the second verse, dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide Whiter than snow you may be today. So, forgiven, pardoned, cleaned, whiter than snow. That's the grace of God that these people at Crete have experienced. This is the doctrine of God. This is the doctrine of grace. And what we read is the poet's rendering of it. Now, we want to see the scripture's rendering of it, which is right in the next chapter, chapter 3 of Titus. We're talking about the sound doctrine, the doctrine of grace. And in verse, in chapter 3, starting at verse 3, yes. For we ourselves were also sometimes, also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Now that's where the songwriter gets dark was the stain that we cannot hide because that's who we were and we could not hide that stain. It was in our heart. But after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. That's where we, the songwriter, gets grace that will pardon and cleanse within, which he, Jesus, shed on us abundantly, uh, God, on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That being justified by his grace, We should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the grace of God, our Savior. This is the grace that in the context that those servants had experienced. This is the grace that they are to adorn with their behavior in their relationship with their masters. They are to adorn this marvelous grace that they have experienced. And not only the the servants, but also everyone in that church, the older and the younger and the men and the women. Everyone that has experienced this grace of salvation by God, everyone who has been pardoned, everyone who has been cleansed, and filled, every one of them, are to beautify the doctrine that saved them. 
So now we'll bring verse 1 back. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Timothy, Titus rather, teach and instruct the things, the lifestyle that is in cord, that accords with, that it lines up to this marvelous grace that you all have experienced. And now we'll bring that here. So in verses 11 to 14, I want to read those yet. We have the position of grace being a teacher. So the grace that saves us, the grace that washes us, also is the grace that teaches us. But let's first go back to the title of this message, the tyranny of chapter and verse. The idea is that the scripture does not speak about something directly. It's the Christian's liberty to do or wear or participate. The viewpoint of chapter and verse that way sidesteps the whole idea of the things that verse 1 is referring to. We are to line up all of our things, all of our life, to this grace. So what does grace teach us? So we'll read verses 12 to 14 here. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These verses do not refer to things. These verses refer to the sound doctrine that's referred to in verse 1, that all things are to line up to that doctrine. So, how do we make this practical? That is my goal this morning. We're talking about guidelines with no scripture references. For your, for your, for your information, I put scripture references to most of those guidelines since that. But the whole idea that you need to have an exact verse. So, let's, let's go to, we can just, let's go to the first guideline that we have there. In our guidelines. Movies. And DVDs. We have that in our guidelines. And uh, I'm going to read most of it. The main premise is we will not be a movie-watching fellowship. Then there's some points underneath that. Recognition given that this medium has a useful and profitable place, especially in education such as real-life video with the instructor teaching and demonstrating also, certain appropriate documentaries in which a story or event is communicated. A clear line is drawn where video becomes drama with actors and performers. And then there's a one point there that ex- exceptions are recognized for certain situations. And the last point here, many Christian, quote, Christian movies have a modern and unbiblical setting and or storyline and should be avoided except for the exceptions noted above. Now, I want to say these guidelines are not the 
sound doctrine. These guidelines are the things which line up with the sound doctrine. They accord with it. We do not have any directives in Scripture that deals with the new phenomenon of recorded audio or visual medium. There's nothing in Scripture. So, what do we do? Do we reject it out outright? Or do we accept it all? Is there some standard in which our Christian activities can be regulated and evaluated? It's a question. If there's no scripture, if there's no chapter and verse on a topic, how will we evaluate? How do you make a decision on these subjective issues? How do you discern this is appropriate, this is not appropriate? This is okay. This is not okay. This is good. This is not good. Is there some inspired standard to evaluate our actions and our conduct? On what basis can anyone evaluate or legislate the behavior of someone else? Where is the chapter and verse? Often there is none directly. So now what? Well, verse 12 there. Sound doctrine says, teaching us, grace is teaching us, this is sound doctrine, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. So living by grace doesn't mean I can do whatever I want. In fact, it means exactly the opposite. Grace teaches us to deny ourselves, deny ungodliness, deny worldly lusts. Saying no to some things because they do not accord with the gospel of our Lord and Savior. So, what is on the majority of media? Ungodliness. And worldly passions. That's a majority of audio and video media. They are lacking in soberness and righteousness and godliness. Any movie or any YouTube that, that we are presented with is one of those things it's one of those things that must accord with this sound doctrine of, ungod- of uh, denying ungodliness and worldly lust and of being sober and righteous and godly. That, there's no verse, but it must accord with sound doctrine. It is the responsibility of the pastors and the older, mature ones in the congregation to first set an example and then to teach the younger ones in these things. I almost think I put put the word things up because we're talking about things is all of our activities. 
That's what things is. So the older are to teach the younger, set an example, and then to teach the younger on these things. And because of the massive flood of influence and availability of media, we have set some guidelines. These guidelines, these things that are in our guidelines, they accord with sound doctrine. Elders especially are to teach and require these things, like Titus 2.15 says to Timothy, these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no man despise thee. See, these things are not optional things. Okay, let's take some wedding guidelines. Now, we didn't look at wedding guidelines um, in, in the last thing there, but we have wedding guidelines here which we didn't change. We'd had them for a dozen years or so. Many weddings are worldly. They copy the traditions or the practices from the world, and maybe with a little bit of modification, they, they practice, they bring it in. But of all the ways you can describe some weddings, it is not soberness or it's not righteousness or it is not godliness. There is immodesty, there is foolishness, there is frivolity, there is worldliness in either full display or in veiled display, but it's there. And who are the people getting married? Young people, most of the time. Generally the ones who need the most instruction. So there needs to be instruction and guidelines given. Nothing Directly from scripture. And it's quite subjective. There's a limit in our guidelines how large the bridal party shall be. There's guidelines on song selections. What songs are appropriate in the special singing. There's direction given on the clapping and so on. There's... Um, yeah, because you'll a lot of things. I'm not going to go down. There's, there's nothing directly scriptural. Where are you going to find a chapter and verse on that? You cannot. Well, I don't know if you can. Maybe you, maybe you can. The focus is to line up that wedding with the sound doctrine that we have as we have read it here. Denying ungodliness, worldly lusts, and those things, and, and, uh, and some promotion. Recreation is another area. Recreation is necessary, and it's beneficial aspect in the life of a Christian when carefully chosen and exercised in moderation. That's what our guidelines say. Then it also says, large segments of modern recreation are more attuned to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye and the pride of life than it is with those in whom the Spirit of God dwells. And then there's some application given. In this huge, multi, multi-billion dollar industry in the United States, there's some guidelines given in what and how to choose a recreation. So, grace teaches us to deny ourselves 
ungodliness and worldly lust, saying no to certain things because they do not accord with the gospel of our Lord and Savior. Then it also teaches us looking for that blessed hope and that glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. See, um, grace teaches us not just to apply these things, but grace also teaches us to look beyond, look beyond this world. And we, we talked about that this morning, did we not? What was said about, I don't know, I, I mentioned something more, it doesn't come into my mind right now. But the idea is like Moses, like Moses. He, he, for the recompense of the reward, he was willing to take suffering right now rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Because when you deny yourself, you are actually putting something away that you could enjoy. There's, there's, we won't deny that there's enjoyment in that. But, Part of what grace teaches us, it tells us to uh, teaches us in, to look forward, and that gives us assists us and gives us ability to deny ourselves of pleasures we can have now because there are better things coming. It had something to do with the promises. That's right, what we had earlier this morning. <clears throat> and and Jesus saved us. And he desires for us, like we read, to be a peculiar and special and holy and redeemed people. Here is where the doctrine of separation is truly clear. As a people, we are different. He gave himself for us. Jesus gave himself for us. And now we give ourselves to him. See, that is grace both ways. And that's what we meant, that's what we mean when we talk about Christ, kingdom Christianity. We are kingdom Christians because we are all of the kingdom of heaven with Jesus as our king. We have kingdom laws and kingdom values and kingdom goals and kingdom purposes and kingdom everything. And, and this reality will regulate what we do as kingdom Christians. And so we will be different from the world. We will not pursue the wealth or the status or the pleasure as the worldling does. We won't. Not as kingdom Christians. What we do and what we wear and what we possess and what we say and our relationships, who we are, how we interact, it's different. It's different. It's because we are Applying the things of sound doctrine. We are kingdom Christians. We are Christ's possession. Actually, that's what in the context here, we, we, uh, here, his peculiar possession. He wants to and he will purify us to be fitting to be his own. I want you to think of this. Nothing that Christ has or nothing that he owns in his possession is going to be dirty. What Christ has, nothing that he has in his possession is going to be dirty. And as cleaned up people, we will make the doctrine of God our Savior attractive. We'll make it attractive to other people. And we'll even make it attractive to other Christians. 
when we properly apply this doctrine of grace. That's what I mean when I say the tyranny of chapter and verse. If we must have a clear scriptural directive in a verse for everything we will do, we will actually miss the grace of God. Now, an argument against guidelines is sometimes stated this way. Well, you can never make enough rules to cover all the possible ways to do wrong. If someone wants to, they can find a loophole and still do what they want. Okay, so are you saying that if since you can't make enough rules to cover every possible application that you shouldn't make any guidelines at all? Is that what we're saying? That's what you do in your home, right? That's what you do in your business, right? That's what you do in your school, right? It's an insane position. Insane is another way of saying, that's crazy. It's crazy to say, since you can't cover everything, you're not going to cover anything. That's that's not logical at all. Have you ever heard anything so foolish? Try to live that out in any other part of your life. Rather, proper church guidelines embraced by people of grace to adorn the doctrine of God. That is not adding to the scripture. That is applying scripture, the doctrine. If they line up with the doctrine. Now the guidelines are not scripture. And they're not written for eternity in the way that scripture is. They are relevant to our day and our culture. And as such, they need to be revisited regularly, and they need to be adjusted if needed, but always in the context of sound doctrine, always. The problem is when the focus shifts from the doctrine to the rule, and the rule becomes the doctrine. No, no, the guideline is the thing that accords with sound doctrine. Our focus must, and I say must, always remain being taught by grace. But it's absolutely biblical to require the things that accord with sound doctrine. That is biblical. So, just want to say, of course, that is another argument that I, I could expound more. Some say, well, don't make rules because then you focus on the rules. And that is a very valid concern. And it is. It has happened and it does happen. And it may not happen. But that doesn't mean that you don't. It's one of those things where you, that might happen. You don't do this at all. It's not right. Now, there is a corporate responsibility and an individual responsibility in all of this, in, uh, in these things. Corporate. We need pastors and elders, and elders not necessarily ordained, it means older people, who will immerse themselves 
into the sound doctrine themselves and pay a close attention to how these teachings are applied and lived out in the life of the church today. We need leaders in churches who will lead their people to know and to practice these teachings personally. We as leaders, and we, we need leaders who persist in the applications in the church and insist that the people follow them. We need leaders who will not be talked out of or moved away from the application of things that accord with sound doctrine. The leaders are to guard the truth against the error. So you need leaders, you need leaders who are solid, who who know what accords with sound doctrine, they can make proper application, and they cannot be talked out of it. They are firm. They know this is right, and they will not be talked out of it. If this is not done, either that the elders can't be talked out of it, or that they don't insist that it gets followed in the congregation, those two things, if that is not done, then there is drift. There is an erosion of the things that accord with sound doctrine. In fact, that is the normal prevalent experience of many churches. A drift, an erosion of multitudes of churches. It may not, it must not happen here. So this is the corporate responsibility. Elders are actually to declare these things and insist on it, as I said. Like it says there in the last verse, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you about this. Don't let anyone come into your church or anyone in your church teach anything that is contrary to this doctrine. See, Paul put Titus at Crete to set things in order in God's house. And then... Titus was also to appoint men who would do the same thing after him. That's his job. This this continuation of this doctrine and applying the things needs to continue on into the next generation, and the leaders need to go on. Then there is a personal responsibility in these things. Each, there is a personal responsibility for each believer to know what this doctrine is, the doctrine of grace that we talked about. You you must know what it means to deny yourself and uh, have grace teach you these things. <clears throat> and individually, you need to take time to meditate and understand what that grace is actually teaching. What it teaches you to deny and what it teaches you to follow. And then we need to then believe that doctrine in such a way that it actually shapes the way that we live out in all of our life. And here's a key point. Not only in those guidelines that are here. These guidelines that we establish are some key areas. But individually, every one of us is responsible to have the the sound doctrine, and apply things in all areas of our life. 
Knowing the doctrine is important, but if it has no effect on our life, we are contradicting what we say we believe. So we need to know the doctrine, and then we need to believe the doctrine, and then we need to live a life that accords with that. And we need to grow in our understanding of what it means and are consistent to it as well. So our guidelines are that. They are guidelines. They are not law. They are not say, thus saith the Lord. They are not scripture. They are things that accord with sound doctrine. That is at this time and in this culture. That is the reason I'm okay with, say, preferring or encouraging certain things, even if you don't make an absolute requirement of something. Because the, the type of guidelines that they are, they're not a law. There's some difference of opinion. There's a little bit difference of practice. So there's some leeway given. There are different levels of maturity. There's some leeway given. And yet there's a, a preference given towards a certain angle, certain uh, direction. So, okay, you don't have to be here right there. But this is more ideal than this. But this is okay you know, that kind of thing, because it's not a law. It's a guideline in some areas. There's a breadth of application in some areas with preferences. Now, you who knew who were at the brothers' meeting know that I struggled to explain what I meant when I was asked a certain question. And it was this question. Is it it is. is. Is following a guideline beneficial if it's not in the heart? So you have a guideline. You don't really see it as necessary. So you follow it, and rather than it becoming in the heart, it just becomes a habit. Is, is that a good thing? Are we not risking just making a bunch of rule keepers if we do this? That's a valid question, is it not? It is. I was trying to get my mind together, and I I couldn't get it together tonight, so I'll explain a little better now. I was trying to explain that our consciences are developed not just by what we believe and not just by what we are taught, but also by what we practice. Practice helps develop our character and trains our conscience. You can use an example. Okay, so someone comes to you and says, you know, that music there is, that's that's not very good music. Well, it's Christian music. Well, that that music is fairly carnal and it's fairly sensual and it has some fairly strong tinges of the world in it. Let's just say it that way. Well, I, I don't see it. Well, put it away for a month and listen to the music, the godly music, the solid meat music. Just put that away for a month. And then a month later, get it back and see how it sounds. And you will find that your conscience, by that practice, by that act, your conscience got sharpened. It got trained. Practice does that. Or like Mary, Mary Zimmerman, in a, she's in a Muslim culture and she covers herself more over there than she does here because of the culture she's in. 
and she was in there in that culture for months. And then she comes to the American culture and she dresses to fit in here a little bit more and she feels like she is, everything is sticking out. It just doesn't feel right anymore. Her conscience got trained in a certain area. So the question, can you require someone to do something that they don't have a heart for? Yes, that's part of training. That's part of training the conscience and the character. Requiring behavior or restricting activities to a child of grace is instrumental in the training of their character, especially the young in their formative years. And it's a very thought is train a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's part of that, that in there. <clears throat> One more point. And that is uh, the last verses, last words in, in uh, verse 14 of chapter 2 of Titus here. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Zealous of good works. Okay, I'm going to zealous of good things. If you are taught by grace properly, if you're a good student of grace, you will be zealous for the things that line up with grace. You won't need a chapter and verse to determine what to do and what not to do and every decision that you look at and the world we live and what for decision to make. What you need to do is have grace teach you and have that accord. And then it says, Christ gave himself for us that he would have a people that are zealous. So, just to put the guidelines here, the guidelines we have, you keep those guidelines with zeal. If they accord with sound doctrine, do it with zeal. Not with a burden, not with, and not only the guidelines, but all of life. Find out what God wants and be, do it with zeal, zealous. And what's the outcome? That we adorn, make beautiful, the doctrine of grace. So here you're living your life and you're making decisions that accords with it and people see that and say, that is beautiful. That is graceful. That is awesome. So back to my original title, The Tyranny of Chapter and Verse. I do not know if I have persuaded you or not. But we do not need a chapter and verse for every activity. We do need principles. We don't want to go out and left field and just make standards arbitrarily. But we just make principles that line up, that accord with the sound doctrine, the doctrine of grace. So may God help us. May we be zealous in that. God bless.